Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Paul and Gillian have been in the church for a year or so, 18 months, um, uh, and um, have, have become very good friends of Philip and mine. Paul used to lead a church. So if you hear as he comes to preach, a little bit of experience on the old preaching side, that's why. Uh, but the Lord has more recently taken him back to his uh, former profession and calling of being a lawyer. And Paul plays a really, provides really important service for this nation in often taking some of the uh, culturally contentious issues and taking them from a Christian point of view and serving and often taking really important cases to court as well. So we're... Uh, hugely grateful to him and to Gillian, who works at the Royal Opera House, for everything that they do. And it's our treat to get him to get to hear him preaching this morning. I wonder whether you give him a very warm welcome as he comes to preach to us. Thank you, David. I just love those introductions, don't you? And um, thank you, Natalie, for leading us this morning, wherever Natalie is. I knew she'd gone out, but there she is. That was just wonderful. So I could have just kept going. As I've been preparing to speak to us this morning, I've, I've felt almost that I'm not just speaking to us as a church, but I have almost a picture in my mind of a spotlight going around this morning and landing on someone and saying, you better be listening because this is for you. And I'm going to move you today. I'm going to move you out of the shadows into light. I'm going to move you out of a dry place into a place that's dripping, a place that's flowing with living water. I'm going to lift you out of a rut this morning. I'm going to put you back on the path. I'm going to touch the wound that you're walking with this morning. I'm going to bring kindness to it. And you're going to keep walking. So I kind of just get that. I'm saying that as a, as a start. Because I just want to say, Lord, well, do what you want to do this morning. And we just want to let you. We just want to be open for business. And I, you know, sometimes, having been to church many a times, spoken and listened, it's easy to just, yeah, yeah, that was a good message this morning. Yeah, that's great. Let's get the Sunday lunch now. But sometimes God, when he brings us in to meet with his people, he says, this morning I want to bring change in your life. It's time to move. And I trust for some of us today, that's going to be what happens. We're continuing our series going through the Gospel of Luke. Gospel meaning good news. So this is good news, and what we are about to read today was said, set in a very particular context, the context of, to a bunch of ordinary people in a nation that was occupi occupied by a foreign power that didn't share their values. Not only did they not share their values, but it was a dictatorship which was ruthless. So Jesus was born when Herod the Great was the, the ruler, and he had one of his wives killed. He had three of his sons killed. In fact, when he felt threatened that he'd heard that baby Jesus was born, he had all the babies killed under the age of two years old. It was a ruthless society in which the people Jesus was speaking to were a minority. By the time Jesus was speaking, John the Baptist had spoken out against Herod's son, Herod Antipas, and about his marriage and said it was adulterous. He spoke out on sexual ethics and it cost him his head. He was executed. So into that context, 
Jesus says these words. So let's have them. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. These are strange verses, um, but there's good news within them in that Jesus is saying this, that the darkness in you doesn't have to stay that way. And the darkness in the world around you doesn't have to stay that way. What he's saying is this, is what captures your imagination will change your heart. And what changes your heart will change your world. What captures your imagination will change your heart, and what changes your heart will change your world. Either light is going to capture you and bring light in you, and you're going to be a light bearer in a dark place, or darkness is going to capture you, and darkness will be carried in your heart, and you'll contribute to the darkness around you. The biblical narrative is full of people who encountered God and in the encounter with God, were changed and changed their situation. And we could, we could spend series upon series of, of unpicking their lives. I mentioned too this morning, Moses, an old man who tried in his younger years to do something great because he was so infuriated the way the Egyptians were treating his people. And yet he screwed it up massively and was really on the sidelines for 40 years. And then he encounters God and God takes this man from the sidelines a broken man, a man who felt he was past it and put him back on the track to deliver a nation. He had an encounter with God that captured his imagination, changed his heart, and released power to change a nation. All the early disciples, uh, Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead, and there they find themselves praying for a lame man on their way to pray at the temple. And the guy gets healed. And then people gather, and these disciples, Peter, starts preaching and saying, it wasn't us, actually, that healed this man. It was Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He's the one that healed this man. And, and this message, boldly given, in the shadow of leaders that had only just crucified their leader, Jesus, led to them being called before those very leaders. And they said to them, and the, the leaders said to them, listen, guys, we hear what you're saying, but can you just keep your religion private? Keep it to yourself. Don't tell anyone about it. It's fine. Keep it to yourself. And Peter responds, judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey God or you. Because we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. You hear that? We cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And it says, and these rulers took note that these, these ordinary people had been with Jesus. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus had captured their hearts, that they defied the authorities, and the church grew around the world. And here we are today. Jesus changes 
people's lives. And here at Christ Church London, he's calling each of us into a fresh experience of him, a fresh capturing of our imagination and our affection with him that will change our hearts and change our world. Jesus changes people's lives. I'm married to Gillian, and it's a wonderful, looks like this way. Married to Gillian, there we are, I get a chance to say it. You know, for most of Gillian's life until she was 35, three times or so during the week, at night, she would have night terror, night dreams. Probably until she said, for as long as she can remember. I could have had her up here to, to share her story herself, but for, for brevity, I'm giving you the, the highlights. And she immersed herself, she was immersing herself in that season, in Psalm 139. It's a wonderful psalm. It talks about God knowing us completely, searching us, and making us fearfully and wonderfully, delighting in us. And Gillian uh, went for some counseling for something else. She'd learned to live with the terror. And she just lived with it. She limped with it. She lived with it. It became part of her life, night terrors. And then in the counseling, just something popped up. The word brat. That word had been a word given to her as a young child by the family in humiliating circumstances over and over again. And that word and those circumstances had embedded in her soul a lie. That you're a brat. Embedded in her soul. And it popped up. And she, Jillian said to me this morning, it was like the snake just put its head over the, over the, over, over the wall. Popped up. And instantly, as Gillian recognized it, Psalm 139, like, consumed it and cut its head off like that. Once, that. once that was identified, immediately the night terrors stopped. Never had them ever again. The light shone into the darkness and brought freedom. And Gillian had been living for years just accommodating terror. But Jesus shone a light upon a lie and set her free. Amazing. Isn't it wonderful? I say that today for this reason. There are words that are spoken into our world in humiliating and shameful circumstances that we've learned to live with and hold us, and we walk with a limp. We carry the terror, and Jesus comes and says, my light is to shine upon it, and I'm coming to bring you freedom. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Jesus wants to do. We read this in 2 Corinthians 3. This is how this kind of plays out. The Apostle Paul says this, even to this day, and I'm going to come back to this first sentence a little bit later, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The way change happens is not a preoccupation with the darkness, but with a preoccupation with Jesus. As we see Jesus, Paul is saying here, the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit that brings freedom, begins to work in me. More and more freedom as I am seeing more and more of Jesus. And as I'm seeing more and more of Jesus, more and more freedom is coming in me. And I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the way 
it's meant to work. Light dispels darkness. Jesus brings freedom. And our enemy, if I can put it like that, critically wants to put in some dimmers, some dimmer switches, and some circuit breakers. And I'm going to talk to you this morning just about one dimmer and two circuit breakers, okay? Because what he wants to do is to stop the light coming from Jesus to me, and then stop the light from coming from me to the world around me. Are you with me on that? Can you see that? That's what he wants to do. And so let me just speak, first of all, about the dimmer switch. And we have a little quote here from C.S. Lewis, who wrote the screw tape letters. Now, the screw tape letters are really a, com a training exercise and a conversation between a rather experienced demon um, and uh, called screw tape, and he's training his nephew, the younger demon, Wormwood, and he's training them how to trip up Christians, how to neutralize Christians. And this is what he says. Okay. And this is written, I think, in the 1950s, so we can overlay this with a little bit of social media as we get to the end. You, know, you no longer need a good book, which he really likes, which a Christian really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of, ad of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about and subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which you want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. So that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I like. Remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are provided, that, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than, a car than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones and without signposts. That's the gradual drift of distraction, where I've no longer been captivated, as we've been saying, by Jesus and light coming in, but actually begin to become more and more distracted. And although back in the days, he, there he was talking about advertisements, in the column, which we, uh, you probably don't read nowadays, but we have our social media. We have our phones. I, I was reading today that I think it said that on average, we check our phones 80 times a day, apparently. Most people don't realize that, but we're hooked and distracted or busy. You, you, you know, busyness. We, we say in our family, I say to Gillian, it's temporary. My father says the same to my mother. It's temporary. It's been temporary for a long, long time. And the challenge when you're very, very busy is what gets squeezed out. Well, clearly the gym. That goes. But there is also, and you know, I'm doing the Lord's work, so the gym can go. But 
Often time alone with Jesus can get squeezed. And so I start becoming a snacker. And it's like a dimmer switch. I'm not seeing so much light. And so the light's fading inside. And the influence around me is diminishing. Because I've become a snacker. I'm doing God on the run. And ultimately, it, it doesn't work. I, I've noticed that in, in the world that I'm in, that it's very easy to become absorbed with the very thing you're fighting. Because you get so mad about it. You see something that's so horrendous. And I have friends that are involved in the work that I do. And I get texts literally throughout the night. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. The, te the, the texts run and run and run. And absorbed. But you know, you don't change the darkness by being absorbed with the darkness. You change the darkness by being absorbed with the light. Is that right? We stand in the darkness but look to the light. But it's, if you're a snacker, you'll soon find yourself drifting, as C.S. Lewis says, just gradually drifting and beginning to run on empty and gradually actually just losing, stepping out of the game. There is no substitute for time alone with God on a daily basis. Whatever that looks like for you, I'm not being prescriptive in that, but time alone with Jesus where the heart is kept tender and moved by God, there is no substitute for it. There's no substitute for having your breakfast, lunch, and well, at least two of them anyway. But there isn't a substitute. And there's no substitute for that. And I enjoy reading. And so for me, it's quite an easy thing to sit and read the Bible. I enjoy that. And I've done that most the last 40-odd years. Almost every morning, reading the Bible and praying. I'm trying to hear what God is saying to me. Giving me strength to go out and let the light shine. Gillian bit dyslexic, struggles with reading. So she listens to the Bible as she's walking around over. So she has it running through her, uh, the, the U version, I think it is. You, and you, you listen to that. Keeping the Bible, keeping connection with God, being fed like that is absolutely essential. And it's a dimmer switch. You can turn it up. More of Jesus, more light, more change. Less of Jesus, less light, less change. And I, I encourage you, turn the dimmer switch up. It's wonderful. So, but let me just move on for a moment to circuit breakers. These are things that turn the light off. Okay. They actually turn the light off. You, you stop, the light stops coming in. Legalism is, uh, and legalism is something that switches the light off. What is legalism? Legalism is the belief that if I do the right things and do not do the wrong things, then I will be acceptable to God and will stand in his smile and in his favor. If I do the right things and not the wrong things, then I will be acceptable to God. And it is a standard to attain. What we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 3, Paul was actually contrasting in that whole chapter two ways. One of them he calls the way of Moses. When Moses is read, he says, a veil covers their mind, uh, covers their hearts. Earlier he says their minds were made dull when Moses was read. What, and Moses is shorthand for saying the Old Testament system of laws by which if you kept them all, 
managed to tick the box, all the boxes, then you could come with confidence to God, say, I'm right with you. I've kept them all. I'm righteous. The problem with Moses and the problem with the rules is that we're not very good at keeping them. At least I'm not very good at keeping them. And I know we're all not very good at keeping them. And so the dominant feeling is one of disappointment. Disappointment with myself. And so try harder. Join the white knuckle club. Come and hear the good news and see all the white knuckle Christians trying harder. And pretending that I'm totally together. Because I need you to know that I'm keeping all the rules brilliantly. And so there's a mask. Because I don't let you see that actually I'm not keeping all the rules and I'm struggling. And in this pretense and in this disappointment, one thing is for sure is that God seems far away. There's a, um, there was a whole church in the New Testament that, uh, that started with good news. The good news that salvation and being made right with God was a gift that you didn't deserve and you could never earn. And they started with this, but they quickly moved into Jesus plus. Jesus plus, I've got to keep the rules to stay right with God. And Paul, when he writes to this church, the Galatian church, he says this to them. He's got a question for them. He's got a variety of questions, but this is a question I want to focus in now on. He says this, where is all your joy? Where is all your joy? He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. He was the answer. It was a free gift for you. And now you've turned away from the free gift and you're trying by keeping the rules to get right with God. And he talks about who's thrown you into confusion. And why are you fighting each other? This is the result of rule keeping. Trying to get to God through ticking all the boxes. And it's disappointing. And I think when, when, when you're living like that, where is your joy? And, you know, I, I've been a Christian for some time, and I've noticed that I go through seasons where I slip into that. I've just got to get, do better. I've got to try harder. And I become disappointed with myself because I've lost sight of the free gift. Jesus plus means joy goes. And it means that when I approach God, probably my first emotion is to say to God, I'm so sorry. Maybe when you come to church, you just like, I'm so sorry. Shouted at my wife. Swore at the kids. But whatever. I'm so sorry. I just want to read for a few moments, take, you, take us back just for a few moments as, as to what really is the good news. The Pope, I've been told, has someone come and preach the gospel to him every week because he, can, he finds it easy to just lose sight of the gospel. He wants to be told the gospel every week. I'm just going to read two simple passages for, for us from the New Testament. And then I'm going to give you some quotes from John Stott, who was a pastor here in London and a theologian, great writer. Let's read this from 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was made sin with my sinfulness, that I might be made righteous with his righteousness. What a wonderful exchange. All of your sins, all of my sins that I'm so glad you don't know about, all of my sins are put on Jesus. All, he became sin with my sinfulness, that all of his righteousness, all of his acceptance with the Father, all of his purity, all of his favor should be mine. That's right at the heart of the gospel. And the, the, the immediate response is, how do I get it? I want that. What do I have to do to get it? The wonderful thing is that I have to believe on Jesus. I have to simply believe what he's done for me, that he did that for me when he died at the cross. Romans 5 tells us this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, through simple believing, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. John Stott explains this word justified. To be justified before God is the exact opposite of being condemned by him. It is to be declared righteous, to be accepted, to stand in his favor and under his smile. That's, if you have accepted Jesus this morning, that's you. Accepted, standing in his favor and under his smile. He, John Stott brings out the contrast between being forgiven and being declared righteous when he says this, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go, you've been led off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means acceptance, justification, will say, you may come. You're welcome to all my love and my presence. So we turn up to Christ Church in the morning, or we get up Monday morning, and you get up with God saying, oh, it's him again. How are we going to get him through the day? Now we wake up and we come to church with the Father saying, you're welcome to all of my love and all of my presence. And one last quote here. Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign or politicians with the public, no, we stand in it. For this is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And as we go into this week, next week, we're not going to be flipping in and out of God's favor, in and out of the love of God. We are secure in being loved by our Heavenly Father. That's incredibly good news. We're accepted, we're in favor. We're welcomed, and it's continuous and secure. Okay, so that's the first circuit breaker. And that's the principal circuit breaker. Legalism breaks the circuit. Grace keeps the light shining. 
because it's because of what Jesus has done that I stand in favor. I come to Jesus not because I've got an A in my report card to say, look what I've done. I come to Jesus because I need to come to Jesus to be changed, to be empowered. Let me just um, take you for a moment on a more personal journey for me. Where here, here we've had the flip-flopping in and out of grace, and I hope we can all be, know that we're secure, loved by God, and so that that light doesn't break from God to us. But then it seems to be what Jesus is saying in Luke is that you can have the light, but you can put it under a bucket. You can know what it is to be changed by Jesus and his light to come to you, but yet you can hide the light so you keep it to yourself. And I think the principal thing that causes us and causes me to put my light under a bucket so that no one appreciates it and enjoys it and is changed is fear. Fear is what makes me hide the light. And if you were hearing the words of Jesus back then and you think, Jesus, you're saying, as he said elsewhere in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the same kind of sermon, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. Don't be hidden. Shine your light. And you're thinking, Jesus, you're saying this to me. And Herod Antipas has just chopped the head off John the Baptist. I'm a minority in an occupied country. And you're saying that I'm to shine the light and change the world. Yes. And so I immediately face, I think in myself, fear. When I, uh, David was saying that I used to lead a church, used to, and when I left that, and I was a really nice guy, I went to be a lawyer, a bad guy. So I went from being a lawyer, no, a good guy, a good lawyer, a nice lawyer, a friendly one with a nice smile, and curly hair, cuddly lawyer. So I moved from being a pastor to being a lawyer. And when I returned, I, I was quite clear what I think God wanted me to do. I thought, yeah, you want me. Um, I hadn't been doing law for a long time, actually. But I felt, you know, what you want me to do is to run cases that are, will affect the country that are on some of the hottest issues, controversial issues in our society. Um, and so give you some of the less controversial ones I've done, challenging the government over its handling of the COVID crisis would be one. Cancel culture would be another. Protecting children from pornography would be another. These are the less controversial ones. We could go further on, but I don't want to be stoned in church. So, I had, and, and my modus operandi was this. I thought, you know, I thought what I'm going to do uh, and let me give a little bit more context. At the time, I was also running a group of schools for kids with autism. So that was, this is a very important point in my, my, what I'm about to tell you. And so we had these schools employing about 300 people or so. And we were catering to these children on the autistic spectrum, which is a wonderful thing. And I thought, you know, I don't want to disrupt my work with kids with autism and these schools. Um, and so what I'm going to do, but I believe God wants me to do this work in the law. And so I'm just going to keep under the radar and go in gently and be hidden and quiet and shoot my arrows, as it were, against the state and the government. Well, the first arrow I shot was against the Royal College of Physicians, as it happens. 
And within a few weeks, the case was on the front page of the Times. And within a few weeks, there was a, an online article written about the Christians who were behind the case. Now, I hadn't been practicing law for years and years, but I got a big write-up all about me. They'd obviously been trolling or whatever one does and made all these connections, which were largely truthful, to be quite honest, but nonetheless. <laughs> and there it was. I was outed. But I wanted to come in under the radar and just walk into work with the schools, with the kids, with autism, and just, you know, hi, guys, you know, and be in church. Hi, guys, you know. Isn't it wonderful to, you know, love Jesus and just be a nice guy? And instantly it was out there. And, um, and then more cases began to come that were much more controversial than that. And I remember at the time thinking, this could collapse the schools. There's a price to pay. And, I'm, and my kids would even said to me, Dad, do you want to die on this hill? On some of the issues I was running. And I decided to do what every courageous Christian does is looking into the light, try and find someone else to do it. So I embarked upon a six-month search to find other lawyers that would do the work that I was doing. And to my shock, there weren't any. I'm not, I'm not joking. And I wasn't asking Christian lawyers to say, please, could you recommend? I was asking people that weren't lawyers of faith, saying, who's going to run these type of cases? And they said to me, I'm really sorry, we, we can't think of anyone that will run these cases. And I um, went through a really wrestling, wrestled a lot in that season. And I remember coming to a few thoughts hit me. Number one, I'm, I'm at a crossroads in my life where I, my world can get smaller and I can live with the regret in years to come of ducking my moment. But God was calling me to stand for him, but I could chicken out and duck it. And I could be a nice person. I'm not, I'm fairly nice. I could be a nice person, sweet Christian, but I could be an ineffective sweet Christian who'd missed his moment. So I had the opportunity of having a smaller world or a bigger world in that moment. I also had to look that beyond those that were throwing the darts and all the rest of it, there was Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's ruling the universe, who's saying, Paul, I'm calling you. One day you'll stand before me. And I'll say, did you do what I asked you to do? That was bigger than the shots, if I'm honest. And so ultimately, for me, it became a matter of just saying, I surrender. Surrender. I'll do it. So that's... My per, one of my aspects of fear, let me share with you another one where I wasn't so good, a recent one, where I was asked, would you speak at something? And I thought, do you know what, I'm just not good enough for that. Not clever enough, not bright enough, there's much better people than me. So I said no. And actually, I think that was a, a mistake. I self-sabotaged because I just didn't feel good enough. And you know, sometimes, you know, God opens doors for you, and there's opportunity before you, and you just think, you look around and you compare yourself to everyone else and say, do you know what? I'm, look, at they're much better than me. I know my brother's an evangelist, and we used to go out 
um, doing these missions out in Africa. And I used to think, if only John was here now. And I remember just thinking, why am I going to deprive these people of God's word because of my fear? and Because I don't feel adequate enough. But on this occasion, I did. I chickened out. I self-sabotaged the opportunity for the next step that God was going to give me because I just didn't think I was good enough. I've had many a time where actually you want to, where you want to pray for somebody, but you think, well, what if God doesn't turn up? Shall I pray? Shall I share? But what, what if God doesn't turn up? The wonderful thing I've found over the years is actually he does turn up quite a lot. And he does wonderful things. And the other thing, I've actually, yeah, you're hearing my, I feel like I've been in church, I've been doing my confessions here this morning. The other one is, actually, I don't want to look stupid. Um, I remember Gillian and I, we were on holiday, and we'd been through a particularly tiring season. And we sat down, and a young lady came to serve us at the restaurant. And as I looked at this young lady, I think I heard God say to me, she's been suffering from nightmares from a very, very early age. I want, to want you to share with her about my love. So that's what I thought as I sat down for my calamari. So I, I made a great mistake later that day. I said to Gillian, I think God spoke to me. What do you think I should do? Man, that was a... Anyway, she said, well, I think you should tell the lady. So I went up to this young lady and I said, I said, I... I I said, I think God spoke to me about you. And she looked at me like I was from the man from Mars. And she said, um, and then I, and then I, I said it. And she, she, looked, she didn't say a word. I said, well, the weather's nice, isn't it? You know, <laughs> something you've got to talk about as an Englishman. Off we went. But Gillian went and caught her the next day and said, you know, my husband spoke to you. And she said, yes. Well, how did he know? I think my mum knows. We had a wonderful time sharing with her. And I went to bed that night thinking, and in the night, the Lord woke me up and said, that couple down at the beach, they want to have a third child, but they've been struggling and they're frightened. Tell them it's fine. I made another mistake. Next morning, I said to Gillian, I think God spoke to me in the night. <laughs> I was so frightened of looking stupid. And this time, I said, you go and speak to them. Which she did, and the lovely thing was that was exactly right. And they have friends within a church context, and they were on, you know, as part of their journey. So wonderful, so exciting. Do you know if I had yielded to fear, as I have done from time to time, but if I'd given in to fear over the last few years, I would have been deprived of the adventure of following Jesus, the adventure of seeing Him change people's lives, the adventure now of speaking to the country sometimes is wonderful and sometimes not, but nonetheless. The adventure of walking with God into a world that is just wonderful. The Holy Spirit is leading us and waving at me in my everyday work. And I'm learning to walk with him in it. And I'm not going to let fear deprive me of the adventure of following Jesus. If you have the band come up, and I'm not going to let fear deprive precious people of the good news that Jesus loves them, wants to change their world. We're just going to wind up here. And I wonder if uh, some of you relate to my confessions this morning. 
that you know you are maybe at that moment where actually you know it, it might cost you something to, to share Jesus, maybe sharing Jesus in your place of work. Or maybe saying, you know, I'm not going to yield to this cultural pressure that I'm being put under to somehow surrender what I believe in. But I'm going to winsomely and graciously stand for what I believe in. It might cost me something, but I'm going to do it. And you're at that moment today. And I believe actually more and more in this country, we will be in those moments in the coming season ahead. Just as Jesus, not in quite the same way as Jesus spoke under an occupied power, but under an oppressive system that seeks to say, it's fine for you to believe that. Please just keep it to yourself. Jesus is calling us into his adventure of seeing his kingdom come, of seeing people's lives changed. But it means we're going to, I think, together, shall we just stand together? I think we're going to need to ask the Lord, as the early apostles did, when they were threatened, when they were told, keep it to yourself. They went, it says they went to their own. And they shared the threats. And they prayed. They prayed. If you want that courage today, they, they prayed, Lord Jesus, you've heard their threats. You've heard their threats. Now enable your servants to preach your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to do mighty miracles through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do you know, as I've just remembered that prayer this morning, I think it's a prayer for us as a church, that we might just lift our hands. If that's for you this morning, I know it's for me. Just lift your hands to Jesus, saying, Lord, I, I want boldness. I want through me in my place of influence for you to reach out your hand and do wonderful things in Jesus' name. Father, we're standing before you as your people this morning. And we don't want to be cowered by fear. And we thank you for Jesus, the light of the world. We thank you for Jesus, whose name is above every name. We thank you for Jesus, who was crucified, risen, and coming again, and to whom we belong. And Lord, in our places of work and our places of influence, I'm asking you for each one of us that you will fill us with boldness. Winsome, gracious boldness to share Jesus. Would you reach out your hand in power through each one of us, ordinary folk in our place and bring healing and bring freedom and bring transformation. Fill us, Father, with boldness this morning. And we turn away today from fear we turn away today from legalism, from just trying to earn your favor. We receive your gift this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you.
root out the lies that have been embedded in our hearts that have caused us to walk is crippled under a cloak of fear and anxiety. Let your light shine this morning. Amen.